Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry, host of GPB's Lawmakers and Lawmakers Beyond the Dome, and I'm filling in for Bill Nygut today. As Election Day draws closer, it's a busy time for those who cover politics in Georgia, and we have a few of them on the show today. We're excited about that. First, Stephen Fowler, my colleague, political reporter for GPB News. How are you, Stephen? Good morning, Donna. Good to have you here. Also, Chauncey Alcorn, who is the politics reporter for Capital B Atlanta. Hi, Chauncey. Pleasure to be here, Donna. Glad you're here. Also, Emma Hurt, politics reporter for Axios Atlanta, and they are celebrating a special time right now, and we're going to talk about that later. How are you, Emma? Hey, Donna. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let's get into it, guys. Let's start with Herschel Walker and the news that the Republican Senate candidate allegedly paid a former girlfriend to have an abortion in 2009. Is it a game changer in the race or will he weather the latest revelation as early voting and Election Day draw closer? Um, Of course, we do want to say that GPB News has not been able to independently confirm the report that came out in the Daily Beast. But let's start with this. Politico claims that Walker's camp actually knew about the allegations months before the news came out that he paid for a woman's abortion um, and that he may have even known even before he got into the race. I want to start with you, Stephen, uh, on this. A lot in just what? Maybe 48 hours, maybe less, 36 Oh, it's been less than 48 hours. It's, uh, it's, it's a remarkable time to be in politics right now. I mean, from the start, Herschel Walker's campaign, even before he launched his campaign uh, last August, there were stories and revelations that have come out about his personal history, his character, uh, allegations of overstated business claims and personal resume claims, Uh, obviously his very public struggle with mental illness and dissociative identity disorder. And amidst all of this, there were, according to this political report, there were the rumors and allegations that Herschel had paid for an abortion of someone. And it didn't really come up. I mean, the way this report reads is that people were hoping that it wouldn't come up like everything else that's come out in Herschel's campaign so far. But I think to your first point in question of, does this matter? Yes and no. I mean, what we've seen in the last 48 hours is establishment Republicans rally around Herschel Walker because at the end of the day, a scandal-ridden Republican is still a Republican in office, and they're hoping that he can help flip the chamber. But... People, not every voter in Georgia, or at least not 50% plus one voters in Georgia, will be a hardcore Republican dedicated to vote for a Republican no matter what. So how many people are turned off by this or the allegations about the secret children that he kept from his campaign or the uh, falsehoods about his past? Like how many people are affected by those 
will be the difference maker if this race goes to a runoff or even if Raphael Warnock potentially can win outright. Yeah. So the the question is whether this is all going to be Teflon that just kind of bounces off on on him. Emma, um, despite the allegations, as uh, Stephen has alluded to, Republican leaders continue to rally behind Walker, it seems. Um, For them, this is more about control of the Senate than it is about Walker as a candidate, it seems. Oh, absolutely. And again, as Stephen alluded to, you know, Ever since we first heard the rumor that Herschel Walker might jump into this race, the questions about what might emerge about his past came up. And everyone was aware that this is a man who who is not who's been a hero for most of his life and hasn't seen much critical reporting. Um, and now and that that might that attention and OPPO researchers might generate things that uh, wouldn't be ideal for a political candidate. But again, um, you know, <laughs> Georgia is a, a necessary seat for national Republicans if they want to regain control of the Senate. And as we can see in polling, even though, um, you know, I've heard estimates that $50 million worth of attack ads have already been spent between all the groups against Walker on, you know, the attacks prior to this about domestic violence um, and his businesses that you know, the polls have largely stayed the same um, in the last couple months, and they still show neither Warnock nor Walker getting more than 50% of the vote and basically in a statistical tie. And so if you're a Republican from on high looking down at this race, you know, you've got a shot here. <laughs> yeah, Chauncey, I want you to jump into this. You know, the National Republican Senatorial Committee uh, Mitch McConnell, all of them are they continue to double down. Even the former president, Donald Trump, released a statement about all of this. So as they're just going to keep going because the stakes are so high. Yeah, I th- uh, one of the things I'm looking into right now is how this uh, situation, this uh, uh, new scandal has affected Herschel Walker's appeal with black Republicans in particular. Um, at Capitol B, uh, we uh, sent a black voices in our coverage, and it's been an interesting uh, conversation that I've had with a few um, that basically they're disappointed in the situation that, that has unfolded. Um, some kind of have been looking for this black conservative champion um, in Georgia, and they, they feel a little frustration with the continued uh, you know, these scandals that come out with Mr. Walker, but they still, on the same hard line, um, are more concerned with the balance of power in the Senate and the R next to his name, which for me raises the question. I don't understand. This is this is a seat that um, up until um, Senator Warnock won it had been in Republican control for like 20 years. You could have ran a, a generic Republican and, and, you know, had a very strong chance of, of winning the seat back, but by choosing Mr. Walker, it's kind of put it in a lot of jeopardy because of his past. So I don't know why Republicans made that calculation. Um, that's something that we'll have to, to figure out within the closing days and maybe even after the election. But it's an interesting uh, situation, to say the least. Well, well Chauncey, let, let's face it. The, the, the feeling is they wanted to put up a, somebody black to attract black voters against, uh, you know, the, the current uh, candidate, I mean, the current, the incumbent, you know, um, Senator Raphael Warnock. And they thought that just by having someone, a black Republican, that black voters would vote. 
I've heard that. I've heard that uh, frame of thought before. I don't know if that's if that's. I haven't heard any Republican operatives specifically that have said that. Certainly, Mr. Walker obviously is African American, and there is a thought that maybe he would appeal. But um, the data has shown that he um, a lot of a lot of for a lot of black people he's less appealing than say Brian Kemp. Um, up until recently, he had polled. Um, worse amongst black people than the governor was, um, or even, you know, Donald Trump in terms of his uh, exit poll numbers uh, following 2020 was uh, had performed better with black people than um, Herschel Walker was. So I've, there's certainly, I don't know if there's a lot of evidence to show that, you know, he's more appealing to black people because of his skin color. Um, I've heard a lot of black people who don't, you know, who are embarrassed by him. I mean, I, and I'm not saying that that's my personal view. I'm saying that's what people who I've talked to both on Democrats and Republicans to express some similar sentiment that they, you know, they want, the black Republicans want somebody to champion and kind of represent them in a, in a way kind of like a Martin Luther King or, or Colin Powell even. Um, and they don't, they haven't seen that in the last, uh, in the Trump era. And, uh, you know, somebody like Winston Sears, for example, in, in Virginia is, you know, at least, credible to a lot of people, you know, and um, has, as opposed to Mr. Walker's appeal, he certainly has the name recognition and the um, fame, and uh, he's kind of more in the vein of Donald Trump than, you know, your Michael Steele's or your Colin Powell's. Yeah. I, the the fact is that I think that the, 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 the Donald, that some believe that Donald Trump pushed Herschel Walker into this into this campaign because he thought maybe he would appeal to black voters. Um, and of course, you know, black voters don't vote as, uh, in a block. Um, so, the, you know, so we're seeing how, how that is playing out. But Emma, I want to get into something uh, you did yesterday. Apparently, um, you talked to someone who attended a prayer breakfast, a prayer luncheon, I should say, where um, Herschel Walker spoke yesterday. And where the media was kept out, but we do know a little bit about what happened. Yes. And I just want to say before I, we talk about the prayer luncheon that it is true that Georgia Republicans had, you know, arguably at least three very solid options on their primary ballot. And Walker won in effectively a landslide, Latham Sadler, Gary Black and Kelvin King. And about a year ago, Gary Black was saying, all these attack ads, all this stuff from his past is going to affect his vote, but it didn't matter to Republican primary voters. So while operatives and strategists and people might have influenced Herschel Walker, ultimately the voters of Georgia chose him as the Republican nominee. Um, on the luncheon, I did speak with uh, Sally Grubbs, chair of the Cobb County GOP, who attended. And, you know, we've seen reports out of it as well. And the word that we've heard is that anybody who was attending to the, attending that is not swayed by this attack, just as they haven't been swayed by other attacks on Walker and that there was rallying around him and praying for him. And, um, you know, the, the note that Grubbs said to me was everyone has, you know, things in their personal life, but I'm not dissuaded by this and I don't think anyone else should be. And as I called around, Republican voters yesterday that I've spoken to in the past, that was the sentiment I got. Now, a lot of them hadn't even heard about this. And so as I explained to them what had happened and what Christian Walker, Walker's son, had said on Twitter, they say, huh, that doesn't sound great, but I'm going to stick with him. Now, there are certainly going to be voters that this influences, I'm sure. I've also heard reports of that. 
But the point is that um, if you were already going to vote for Walker, even if you're pro-life, anti-abortion, excuse me, um, you know, that this doesn't seem to be changing minds so far. Then again, it has been, as Stephen said, 36 hours. So let's give the data some time and the attack ads that I'm sure are to come from this uh, some time to sink in because um, that is, as we know, really where the rubber can meet the road. Yeah, so I, I know you that, the, that there are some other conservatives that have weighed in on this, um, that talking about, uh, I, I I believe you or somebody with Axios talked to Martha Zoller, who's the conservative talk show host, about it, and she said the from a number of people that have have um, have pause about what they've heard, but that right. you 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 can finish that. Yeah, I did speak with Martha Zoller as well. Um, I, I and and as you said, she she said she heard on her her own show, which is Colin Show yesterday that that there were some people thinking huh this doesn't sound great would really like to see more of an explanation from walker rather than a just a simple denial but um again this race has statistically been in a tie for a while and with no sign of national money pulling out um you know many republicans now that the dust has settled are wondering what if if this is really going to be that bad and Stephen uh, Newt Gingrich was uh, talking about um, this on, and he talked about um, Walker being the most important Senate candidate in the country because of what he'll do to change the Senate. It really is about what's going to happen after the the elections. Who controls the Senate? Absolutely. I mean, and 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 you have conservative commentators and others that are explicitly saying this. You know, uh, Dana Lesh, the former NRA spokeswoman and uh, radio host, literally has a video saying, like, uh, something to the effect of, I don't care if Herschel Walker aborted a bunch of baby bald eagles, I want to win the Senate. And and that's a much more brash way of putting it, but that's the general gist of what you're seeing. I mean, Newt Gingrich knows a lot about personal scandals and other things, and he still had a lot of support, supports a lot of people. But the thing of it is, you know, this would be different if Georgia was a state that wasn't so closely politically divided, and if our Congress wasn't so politically divided. I mean, there are candidates over the years that were sunk by many lesser things. I mean, uh, Todd Aiken and his comments about legitimate rape, and Christine O'Donnell when she said she dabbled in witchcraft. You know, there are there is precedent of this before 2016, before Donald Trump, and even in some of the reporting that's come out, you know, some Republicans have used Donald Trump and the Access Hollywood tape where he came out saying that he could grab women by you know what, and that didn't damage him, and he came on to be the president, that we're in a new era of political warfare where at the end of the day, what matters most isn't the policy chops or the shortcomings or the dalliances, but what letter is at the end of the name on the ballot? And so we'll see if there are 50% plus one voters who care more about that than Herschel Walker, the candidate. But the polling suggests, even though it's been within margin of error, that Walker has been behind and that there are probably a good chunk of people that will either uh, vote for Raphael Warnock not vote at all or vote for the libertarian because they won't vote for Herschel Walker. 
Yeah. And then there's the the people who are or may focus on just the issues themselves and see what what um what Warnock has focused on, what some of the some of the things that may come up um in the next year or two and and look at that. And let, but let's talk about how Democrats have responded to this news a little bit, Chauncey. On some fronts, pretty quiet, right? Yeah, um, Senator Warnock has, uh, you know, um, it's kind of part of his uh, his essence or as a as a pastor. He kind of takes the high road. I asked him some questions about some of uh, um, Mr. Walker's earlier scandals with the, involving his kids, and uh, you know, um, he um, Senator Warnock kind of t- uh, declined to comment. And that, I've seen reports in AJC and elsewhere that uh, he's taking a similar approach here, kind of speaks for themselves. I think it'll be interesting to see during, um, number one, how does this affect their debate? Um, I haven't seen any reports yet that that, uh, um, Walker, you know, is canceled or is looking to pull out. But, uh, you know, one would think, even with the special format that they've established in Savannah, that this is going to be brought up and, you know, it'll be interesting to hear what his quest, what his responses are. Um, I think uh, on the uh, Republican side, they're really trying to focus. I've talked to some operatives at the RNC who said, you know, that this was just kind of another, uh, quote-unquote, October surprise, and it's, it's, just, it's a distraction um, from the issues that they want to focus and uh, tie Senator Warnock to uh, President Joe Biden, um, who hasn't polled as well um, as, as uh, he has previously as well as the issues that they say voters are caring about, uh, mainly inflation and the economy. Um, that's how they want to spend it. But, but again, uh, you, would, you wouldn't have this problem if you had just a boring standard Republican, um, as opposed to someone, you know, with the uh, history. You know, we're all human and everybody has a past, but, uh, you know, we're not all running for the U.S. Senate. And to, for, you know, for to have something, the balance of power rest in the hands of this situation is kind of, you know, you didn't have to do this. A lot of people um, have expressed some uh, reticence or some concern, like why did we choose this candidate? Um, and uh, this is things that they brought up in the primary, Kelvin King and other of the uh, challengers to Mr. Walker uh, said similar things about, you know, this is what they were worried about. Yeah, there's certainly uh, getting back to you, the debate. There's certainly a sub speculation that Walker's camp might cancel that one debate, that one debate that is coming up between the candidates. But we'll see what happens. It certainly did, um, this information didn't keep Walker's campaign from pointing out some of the things about um, Warnock. I, um, I saw a lot, especially on Twitter, oh, resurfacing on the allegations against Warnock that he ran over that um, his ex-wife's foot, that kind of thing started coming out. Um, then there was a press release also by um, the, from the Walker campaign pointing out um, on the crime issue that it talked about Morehouse students furious over the wave of car break-ins and starts with students at Ra- Raphael Warnock's alma mater are su- uh, suffering from under his anti-police soft-on-crime policies and and just a big focus on those kinds of things and... and um, you know, just continuing to um, not let the, what's happening with this uh, latest news take away their focus from hammering Warnock on some of the issues. But, Stephen, one of the other things that came out of all of this that's kind of interesting is that Walker's campaign manager, Scott Paradise, tweeted yesterday that there was the mad dash of poorly sourced reporters to write absolute nonsense 
today is comical. This is what he said yesterday. And he said, here are some of the facts. We've raised a boatload of cash in the last 24 hours. We're ignoring the noise and going to win. So this became a way of raising money, this news. Right. And I actually got a fundraising email last night from the Walker campaign where they were fundraising off of this abortion story. You know, it's the same thing. They're going to uh, denied it and then also threatened to sue the Daily Beast, which hasn't happened and most likely won't happen. But it is a money-raising tool. I mean, that's another byproduct of how nationalized politics is today and how these campaigns have gotten really, really good on both sides of the aisle of raising a ton of small-dollar cash from people all over the country on any given outrage. I mean, the day that Marjorie Taylor Greene lost her committee assignments, was one of her record fundraising days for her. And, you know, you see time and time again that whenever a candidate or a politician, they do something, it gets a lot of media attention, there's a lot of outrage around it, and then they go hit up their supporters in email and on social media, and three months later when the financial report comes out, you see it was a banner day for them. So it's unsurprising that they're fundraising off of this because the people that are getting these fundraising messages and giving them money are the people that are going to stick by them no matter what. You know, they're not necessarily sending out TV ads to the northern Atlanta suburbs saying they claim I paid for an abortion, but it's false and you should give me money because it's a little bit of a strike sand effect there. But, you know, it just shows that politics is a zero sum game and the Georgia Senate race is the zeroest, summiest of them all. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that. Uh, I want before we we stop talking about the, the all of this, I want to talk about one other thing, and that is what could be the spoiler in all of this. Could the libertarian candidate, Chase Oliver, be the spoiler uh, siphoning off the Republican votes in all of this where people, you know, they're they're not happy, but they're uh, likely to lean his way. Um, we've known that that's happened before and actually, um, Chase Oliver tweeted yesterday, he says, I'm a fiscal conservative. I support gun rights. I want to make it easier to start a small business. I'm against taxation. So there are a lot of areas where I feel like Republicans can feel comfortable supporting me and knowing that I'm on an honest and principled choice, Emma. He's he's kind of, you know, he's he's out there. And, you know, we're a state where the you know, where you've got to have that 50 percent plus one majority in votes to win and avoid triggering a runoff. And whenever we bring this up, any person on either campaign immediately shushes you and does like an incantation to try to counter the, the, <laughs> the spell of runoff. But it's so true, Donna, um, in, in both of our, um, you know, top races, I believe there are independent candidates in all of the races, but um, especially in, in the closest at the top, it's it's the specter hanging over this, most especially in the Senate race, just given the way that the polls have looked so far. Um, and, you know, there's definitely the question of will, will Chase Oliver be able to pull some Republicans who are disenchanted by both candidates? It's also the question of will people just skip that race and then vote in the governor's race and, and further down ticket, as happened in 2020. In Georgia, where um, I think it's like 27,000 people who skipped the president's race and, and kept voting down the ticket. So, um, you know, it's a funny thing about voters. Sometimes they make up their own minds. And, and 
<laughs> and uh, and can sort through candidates and skip races if, if they aren't happy with anyone on the ticket. Yeah, split ticket. Chauncey, you want to weigh in on this a little? Yes, yeah, there's so many, uh, you know, historic uh, situations. You have two black men running for a U.S. Senate seat in Georgia for the first time ever, really only um, his first time or second time in the history of the country. Um, one who has a, a very checkered past um, that people are kind of um, urging for in spite of everything that's kind of come out. Um, and, yeah, there, there it's you also have the situation where, um, third-party candidates are going to play a pivotal role with races so close. So it's, a, it's an open question as to how many um, folks Mr. Oliver can siphon off. And uh, you would, one would think he would certainly have more of an effect on the Republican candidate than the Democratic candidate. Um, you have a similar situation in the uh, governor's race as well with uh, some of the uh, independent candidates with, and uh, that might also affect Ms. Avens more so than uh, Mr. Kemp. So it'll be it's, uh, an exciting time to cover politics. Yeah. Well, it certainly sounds like Oliver thinks he can siphon off the Republican candidates. So we'll see what happens. But we're going to we're going to take a a break and stop this conversation. And and when we after this first break, come back with more political news and look a little bit more at the governor's race and other politics, other other things in politics. This is Political Rewind on GPB. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut with the GPB's Stephen Fowler, Capital B's Chauncey Alcorn, and Axios Atlanta's Emma Hurd. And before we get back into our conversation, I want to remind people that it's Wednesday. And on Wednesday, we have their, the Political Rewind newsletter. Uh, it's called Georgia Today. It's, news, it's a newsletter all about politics, a lot of what we've been discussing, and so much more about uh, a lot of the news that we're hearing, uh, not just politics, but all, a lot of the news that we're hearing all over the state. What's going on right now, go to gpb.org slash newsletters for that and uh, sign up and have it um, sent to your mailbox like I do. Do that. So let's get back into our conversation. Um, Chauncey, I want to talk. start with you. You had a Q&A with Stacey Abrams on Capital B, and she highlighted quite a few things. Um, before we actually have you talk about it, but one of the things she talked about was a plan to erase a 100-year racial wealth gap, and we have some sound of that from your interview, and let's hear that right now. And the governor's response is he's going to study it. We don't need to study. He can cheat off my paper. We've already done the studies. The studies have been done multiple times. That's why we know there's a 100-year gap in economic parity, if we continue the way that Brian Kemp has been taking us, it will take 100 years before black people have the same economic parity in business as white people in the state of Georgia. So, Chauncey, the racial wealth gap. Tell us about it and what, the, what she had to say into context for us. Absolutely. So we know that um, particularly in the Atlanta metro area, Atlanta is, has been regarded for years 
as uh, one of the uh, worst cities for income inequality between whites and blacks. Um, um, a recent Atlanta wealth building um, study found that almost 70% of black families are liquid asset poor compared to 22% of whites. So um, one of the things that I found interesting in our conversation with Ms. Abrams was um, while a lot of attention in, the, in recent polls and um, reporting has been done on her uh, alleged lack of appeal or um, the underperformance that she's had with black voters um, and the consternation that frustration that black um, voters in Georgia have felt with Democrats um, uh, since giving them the control of the House, the Senate and the White House in 2020 uh, with some of the policy initiatives in, in, on Capitol Hill and inflation. Um, Ms. Abrams and um, other operatives on her campaign and elsewhere have pointed out um, that the, the uh, state of Georgia has been in Republican control for basically a generation. And a lot of the issues that black voters, the frustrations that they are having are not so much with uh, control of what's going on in Washington um, since Democrats took over for in the last two years, but with what's been going on in the state for roughly 20 years um, at the at the least. So um, she was very good at um, framing that and pointing out some of the things that, you know, in terms of health inequality, housing inequality, and uh, wealth and income inequality, that she uh, p um, puts more squarely in the feet of uh Governor Kemp and his Republican allies than so much what's going on in Washington, which has gotten all a lot of the attention. Yeah, so she's talking and putting it at, at, at Kemp's feet, but the reality is this has been going on for a while. This is nothing new, this wealth, racial wealth gap. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, she talked about her plan, one of, um, one of the elements um, as a way to address this being um, uh, supporting Black-owned businesses in the state um, and breaking up, um, you know, contracts um, so for inf uh, infrastructure development so that Black businesses could uh, that are smaller or would be able to uh, take advantage of this because they don't necessarily have the same in infrastructure as white-owned businesses to do these large projects. Uh, there was a similar approach taken with the bipartisan infrastructure bill um, that Democrats um, and Republicans passed. Um, at, and uh, about a year ago, where you, um, the uh, U.S. Black Chambers of Commerce was very much in favor of that measure, in part because it gave minority-owned businesses contracts by breaking up large infrastructure deals that tend to go to your more mainstream um, commercial uh, contractors and and, and such. Um, so she's taken a similar approach there. She also talked about things to uh, that she wants to do to address wage theft in the state, which uh, disproportionately impacts um, black population, which uh, uh, tends to work in um, um, lower-paying um, uh, retail and service sector jobs. So there's, uh, I don't know if, if I'm being honest, if those things are going to address the immense, uh, are going to close the wealth gap. Obviously, this there's, but uh, again, she points to what it's a better than what Governor Kemp and the Republicans are looking to do, which in her estimation is little to nothing to help Black people um, address this uh, clear um, inequity. But she's also, uh, you know, she's obviously offering something that some some in the black community have com, um, criticized her for, and in particularly understanding black men, that she wasn't focusing enough on issues that black voters want to hear about, right? And so this this sounds specific to that, and that she's focusing on that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, that's uh, it's been interesting. Um, I. Back during the primary season, um, I interviewed uh, Dee Dawkins Hagler, who was running for Secretary of State Democratic nomination against B. Nguyen and others, and she pointed out 
and uh, at the time that she felt that the uh, party bosses in Georgia for Democrats were not leaning enough into the black vote and uh, that there were they would have problems as a result of that. Um, uh, Ms. Abrams and others had uh, endorsed. Uh, there were there was a lot of uh, black candidates who ran in the Secretary of State's race, um, um, and Ms. Nguyen was the only non-black candidate. And uh, um, Ms. Dawkins Taylor pointed that out. And uh, a lot of the, some of the nominees were, uh, um, you know, non-black um, on the uh, Democratic ticket. Uh, Charlie Bailey uh, for lieutenant governor, and some of the others as well. Now, Ms. Abrams did endorse. William Bodie Jr. for labor commissioner. And uh, so it's kind of like been this racial coalition on the Democratic side. Um, some had questioned if there was if that was a bad strategy, if they should have leaned more into the black vote, knowing that um, black folks make up the, a base of the Democratic Party in Georgia. So there's there's been some question if maybe the poll numbers that we've seen showing um, relative lack of black support, um, if that's one of the reasons. And that um, but Ms. Abrams has pointed out that she had similar poll numbers um, four years ago, um, around this time, where she was, I, I, I think there was an AJC poll that had her about 85% black support. She ultimately ended up getting 93% of the black vote during her first run against um, go, um, now Governor Kemp. So, um, a lot, some Democrats think that this, uh, all this hubbub about the black vote and will black uh, underperformance of black voters is kind of much to do about nothing. That once election day rolls around, we'll, that, that black people in the state will turn out and, and Ms. Abrams because they, a lot, as much as they might have consternations with the Democratic Party, both at the state and federal level, it doesn't, uh, you know, the Republican Party is not really an option for a lot of them. Yeah, let's remind people where they can find that article in your interview. Yeah. Absolutely. You can check the, check us out at atlanta.capitalbnews.org. Okay. Well, Stephen, let's let's talk about um, Governor Brian Kemp. Uh, we understand he was at Clark Atlanta University yesterday, last night, and he uh, he spoke to, uh, it was a, a forum put on, some kind of a town hall put on by uh, black radio stations. But he's, he's also, you know, stepped up some of the things he's doing. So one of the things that we heard early on from Stacey Abrams was that she was pushing him to, to suspend the gas tax through the end of the year, and he keeps doing it in increments. And so that is something that will look good going into the next few weeks, right? Well, yes, but also it's important to remember that there's only so much at a time that the governor can do with these suspensions and things like that. It's not necessarily like he could have gone back in April and say, I suspend these towards the end of the year. There's certain time limits and things that have to be renewed. But, uh, you know, the, the key message that Governor Brian Kemp is taking into these final weeks of the campaign is that Georgia's economy is great. And it's great because of the Republican policies he's championed. And that's what he's banking on voters looking and seeing at their own personal story. And he also is a Republican and he can say, look, our economy is great, but anything that's not great is a result of federal level democratic policies. You know, if it was up to him, inflation wouldn't be so high if Republicans were in charge. And so what he's doing is, you know, really touting that economic message that has been the driver of the last 20 plus years of Republican success in the state. And by showing up to that uh, venue and event last night, Brian Kemp is also not taking any voter for granted. Even though the polls show him up and up by a wide margin, that's probably not the likely reality. And he's campaigning like he is fighting for his life against Stacey Abrams, trying to avoid a runoff and trying to avoid losing. 
And it's a smart strategy because Republicans in the last few years have kind of taken their advantage for granted. And Democrats have built up a huge army of fundraising and grassroots volunteers and things like that. And so what you're seeing now is Brian Kemp's campaign really playing the role that the state party should be playing or some of these national groups should be playing. And he has a massive presence on the ground. Uh, he, fundraising numbers, he told the AJC this morning that between his leadership committee and his personal committee, he raised more in the last uh, filing period than the entire 2018 run. And so Brian Kemp is really in the driver's seat of Republican success in Georgia and will be the one most responsible for Republican victories this November, if that's how it shakes out. Yeah. And it's interesting that he is that he was the only Republican last night at Clark Atlanta University and that, the, you know, that there was nobody else um, from um, from the party there who spoke. So he he obviously knew where he was going, why he wanted to be there and that he um, he is courting those votes that he definitely wants to to make sure he he uh, gets to everyone, as you point out. Um, Emmett, you know, I want to get I want to switch gears just a bit and talk about uh, a report that uh, you guys had with Axios Atlanta on uh, voting access um, and that Georgia ranks 29th in the country for voting access, according to the nonpartisan 2022 cost of voting index and published in the Election Law Journal. That is um that doesn't bode well for our state. It doesn't say a lot, anything good. Um, you know, we picked up this report because it, uh, you know, tw- 29th Georgia did fall four places since 2020 and that the report's authors attribute it to parts of the new election law, including um, cutting the total number of absentee ballot drop boxes as Stephen has reported on so thoroughly. Um you know, the uh, ban on line warming, as we know, the addition of voter ID on absentee ballots. But, um, you know, as as the report's authors also pointed out, you know, there are, it's kind of a mixed bag if you look at the total rankings. New Hampshire falls um, last. And, uh, you know, Georgia, despite all the attention on its, um, Republican voting policy in the last couple of years is in the middle of the pack, all told. And, you know, Republicans obviously have continued to defend this and pointed out certain things like access to early voting is greater in Georgia than other blue states. Um, but it, it, I think it's an interesting report for people to dive into and just see a bit of a dispassionate look at what constitutes a, as a barrier to voting and, and where Georgia stands. Um, I do want to point out on the Kemp's uh, sorry to jump back, but he is actually also right now at a um, round table with Shelley Winter of WSB, also speaking to black business owners. So not just a one-off thing last night. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I, Chauncey, your thoughts on, on how Kemp is doing at this point? Yeah, I've, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, well, Brian Kemp has uh, more recently polled better than Herschel Walker um, um, amongst the black electorate. There are certainly... Um, individuals. First and foremost, um, you have the more traditional black Republican um, that is going to vote R um, pretty much no matter what. But you also have folks that are kind of on, you know, swing voters that some of them uh, on the Democratic side have uh, respected, um, if that's the right word, um, Brian Kemp's 
uh, I guess, standing up to President Trump during the uh, 2020 cycle, as well as Brad Raffensperger, um, to the consternation of Democrats who, you know, have pointed out multiple times, including Ms. Abrams and Ms. Nguyen, who I've talked to, uh, you know, that they, uh, both Kemp and Raffensperger, have pushed to limit voting rights um, across the state in spite uh, of not, as they say, committing treason during the uh, 2020 election. So there there has been some um, uptick in uh, Kemp's um, black support. I believe he had something like 7 percent in 2020 and um, something around 10 or more percent um, in some recent polls. So there's evidence to suggest that, that uh, black folks are winnable. The arguments that Republicans have maintained about inflation um, which disproportionately impacts black people who are um, poor and working class. Um, and some of the other issues, including crime, um, is one that kind of resonated um, with some people. I don't, uh, but certainly there are black people that are frustrated um, that I've talked to with those issues. I don't necessarily know if that's a, if that translates to support. Um, one of the more recent AJC polls had black, uh, about 10% black people uh, surveyed were undecided. So I don't know if that's translating that way, but certainly there are folks, particularly in the business community, that vote Republican for uh, because it's in the interest of their uh, uh, business and economics. So um, he's working to try to appeal, and um, they, the Republicans have certainly invested a lot of money in recent years in trying to cut into that black electorate in Georgia. Yeah, and speaking of money, um, uh, Emma, you talked you you had a piece the other day on six point six billion dollars surplus that about how much each candidate will spend uh, will have. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's just mind boggling yeah. the numbers we're talking about, right? I know it's crazy. Um, and I think, you know, the surplus and what, what Chauncey's been discussing about Abrams' plan to address the racial wealth, wealth gap, these, these are moments where we see how differently these two candidates have, have viewed their pitch to voters on the governor's office. Abrams is someone who, as minority leader, was deep in the state budget. And she has really spent a lot of time in coming out with detailed line item spreadsheets of how she would spend the state's money to enact the change that, that she says would make such a big difference to Georgia voters. Meanwhile, Kemp has kind of gone by the keep it simple, stupid argument uh, or theory of the case in his in his case to voters, looking at his record, look at what we've done. And he hasn't given much detail as to what he um, would do in a second term. I mean, for example, on the surplus, he has committed to um, income tax rebates, as we know, and uh, property tax rebates, and to using some of it to extend the, the state gas tax as a suspension, as he has been doing. But the rest, he says, you know, I will work with the General Assembly to figure out what to do next session. Meanwhile, Abrams has really itemized exactly what she would do with it. And um, she also, of course, as we know, would use it to suspend the state gas tax suspension and give income tax rebates with a different twist on them for people making below $250,000 a year. But the point is, this is just another example of just how differently these candidates have approached um, have approached their campaign platform. Yeah, Stephen, uh, Brian Kemp has always kind of piecemealed the, the, when it comes to the money issue, like where people are, where, what is he going to do with this money? You know, there's this money here. It's kind of the pot is there. What's he going to do? And whereas, as uh, Emma points out, Stacey Abrams kind of lays it all out. 
Right. I mean, and when one of the reasons Georgia has the bond rating that it has and other things like that is that Republican governors have basically acted like, for the most part, that extra money and that surplus isn't there. And when it is, it goes back to the taxpayers because you never know when the next recession is going to happen or when inflation happens or something else happens that needs money. And so the strategy is, especially with the $6.6 billion, is like that's not going to be $6.6 billion in new spending, but it's also not going to be $6.6 billion back in the pockets of Georgians. And so there is a balance. I mean, the governor's budget office has instructed state agencies to propose their next fiscal year budgets, uh, assuming that they get no increases, but, uh, and that will happen. But as we've seen, there is this, you know, if this agency really needs this money here for pay increases to try to retain workers, then he and the legislature will go for it. Or if they really need this capital outlay here to, you know, replace a building or something like that, he'll do it there. So the approach that he's taking to this really isn't different than his first three years in office but we're just talking about a staggering amount of money. And it's something that's going to take a lot more time and energy and resources to figure out the best way to do than to just say, all right, here's my Christmas wish list, you know, have at it in January. That's true. Well, we're going to pause on this and and, uh, take our final break. So we'll be back in a moment with more of Political Rewind. Welcome back to Political Rewind. I'm Donna Lowry filling in for Bill Nygut. I'm here with Stephen Fowler of GPB News, Chauncey Alcorn with Capital B, and Emma Hurt with Axios Atlanta. And in our last few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about um, the voting and the fact that there are with less than two weeks left from early voting in the state. The FBI has listed Georgia as one of seven states where poll workers continue to see an unusual level of threats on of violence on election workers. And we have sound right now from the former director of elections for the Secretary of State's office, Chris Harvey. So let's hear that. The more we can get the law enforcement people talking with the election people, getting them to understand, getting them to prepare and plan, they can they can look forward and see potential problems and say, okay, what are we going to do if or what are we going to do when? So that was um, Chris Harvey, who I said, former director of elections for Secretary of State, for the Secretary of State's office, talking to GPB's uh, Orlando Montoya about that that issue in particular. It's pretty scary now out there for some poll workers, but I know there's still a need. So I wonder how this will affect voters and the workers headed into the election. And I'm going to start with you on this, Emma. What are you hearing? I mean, we do know that after 2020 election, the job of an election official in Georgia has changed dramatically. Um, And the attention on election, the processes of our elections has reached reached an unprecedented level. Um, We're anticipating really um, much more organized and extensive poll washing from from the parties and from outside groups, official and sort of non-official poll watchers. But, you know, we also know that the Secretary of State's office is preparing for threats if things go awry. Um, We know that they 
have instituted kind of a text hotline for poll workers where um, there, there's a special number that they'll be able to text if there's something going on at a precinct that will immediately disseminate to law enforcement and to the Secretary of State's office um, to try to get a rapid response and try to keep track of that as we go. But um, yes, it's a, it's a new problem in Georgia um, and around the country. And we just, I mean, we hope that the, the kinds of harassment that we saw after 2020 does not occur in the same way this time, but there's much greater awareness for yeah. sure. Yeah, I, I was going to mention also that the, um, the spokesperson for the Secretary of State's office, Mike Hasinger, uh, suggested also to The New York Times, and this is related in a, in a way, but um, looking at Georgia's election laws and how they've um, how they've changed that maybe some of maybe we went may have gone too far with some of the things. Apparently, he said to the New York Times that the provision against line warming, which is giving out food and drink, shouldn't have been included. And he he is quoted as saying it is. Is it really that much harder to vote if you don't get a snack while you're waiting? So, I mean, Stephen, we're, we're you know, we don't have a lot of time. But and can you briefly talk about, you know, how people are kind of anxious as they go to the polls a little bit on and the work, you know, we've talked about the workers, but people are kind of uncertain, maybe, about what, what to expect. Right. I mean, you know, the, the SB202 changed virtually every aspect of elections in Georgia, touched on virtually every aspect of elections in Georgia. And so some of the changes might be minor or superficial or not affect voters. But still, for the average person, hearing that there's this massive law changing the way we vote, it does provide some uncertainty. We still have counties posting that they're looking for poll workers. We have people that don't believe the election was fair in 2020 signing up in droves to work as poll watchers. So it does create this very uncertain environment, and it's the first major statewide election after the 2020 election, which was during the pandemic when people changed their voting behavior because of concerns about COVID. And so there is a lot up in the air about voting right now, but what's not up in the air is that our system is safe and secure, that people in all 159 counties have been working for weeks to prepare for the election, and that most people will probably end up voting during the three-week early voting period, and that if there are things that pop up and happen, it happens every election, there's nothing nefarious involved, and that people should trust in the voting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I guess you're, you're going to Get the last word today, Stephen, on this. I am happy that you were able to join us, Stephen Fowler, GPB News, Chauncey Alcorn with Capital B. And uh, real quick again, where do people find you? Uh, you can check out our work at atlanta.capitalbnews.org. Okay. And then Emma Hurt, con- congratulations on the one-year anniversary for Axios Atlanta. It's very exciting. If, if you've been following, you know they're doing some great work. And we're going to hear more about it in the coming days and months and weeks. But that's all we have time for today. We just have to say go Braves as we close out. Uh, Voter registration deadline in Georgia is next Tuesday, October 11th. Early voting begins on Monday, October 16th. Thank you for tuning in to Political Rewind. And thanks to the staff here for always being so great and wonderful to me. Have a great day.